So I want to ask you something. Have you ever been around someone that is a, that is a worshiper of the Lord? I want to describe to you some of their characteristics. He is the only one that they want to talk about. That seems to be like this common characteristic. Um, he is the reason for their existence, their first love, their hope, and their joy. They hang on his every word. They love his presence and they seek after him. Uh, they defend his reputation and they stand up for his causes. But I think there's something else that's very unique about him and I think it's really what draws me in and that is it's, it's the way that they, that they actually talk about him. Um, you see, for when they speak about him, it actually draws me into his presence. It produces in me a longing and a hunger for his presence, and I believe that that is the aim of Psalm 19. It is to draw us into the Lord's presence, and when that happens, all we can do is worship him. So I basically have two questions for you today. One is, are you a worshiper of the Lord? And number two, how do we become a worshiper of the Lord? Would you guys pray with me? Lord, it is so good to be in your presence where you bring joy and contentment, but you also bring to the realization that you are God. We are, we are small, yet you have such a purpose and plan that your word moves in us and creates in us the way we were meant to live and be both with you and one another. As we read your word today, Father, create in us and stir in us. May we listen and see and taste that you are good. Lead us there, Lord, because we need you to. Thank you for your presence with us this morning. We love you and we need you. Amen. So let's read Psalm 19 together. I'm probably not going to open my Bible as the moment unless the Holy Spirit just tells me, hey, let's read this verse. Uh, that really never happens. Um, I've got a piece of paper here to help me stay a little bit more organized. But let's read it together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. 
sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins or willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we're going to look at this psalm today in three separate parts. It has three sections to it, but I want to emphasize that these parts are all inextricably linked together. Even though we've broken up this psalm into different parts to read it and understand it, it operates as a whole. And each of the part works together and they depend upon each other. Psalm 19 is essentially a poem of David, a hymn written by David in praise of God. It is also classified as a prayer with both communal and individual confession in it. I don't know about you, but I don't spend much time reading poetry. Um, It just isn't something I'm really interested in. I would suspect that many of us don't. Our modern-day culture doesn't give it much time either, as the primary focus of our communication is about giving as much information as possible, to be direct, clear, and leave room for very, for, leave very little room for varying interpretations. It seems to be all about the data. Let's look at, your, let's look at our various health insurance policies. I bet whenever we get them, they're like a stack of papers this thick, and the last thing we would call it is poetry, because it's far from it. It doesn't stir us, it doesn't move us. Nobody wants to spend any time reading it because it's not beautiful. It's not meant to draw us in like that. And poetry doesn't work like that either. It is artistic, meant to be pondered, chewed, and meditated on. For example, compare it to a river or stream using all your senses to comprehend what you're taking in. Appreciating the beauty and the contours and colors of both the water and what is below the surface, the colors of the plants, algae, and moss, and the different shapes and hues of the rocks. How the river bends, the movement of the water over the rocks. Appreciating the ripples and rapids that create these movements, movements, hearing the water as it crashes and glides and falls into itself or collides into other objects. Tasting, smelling, touching the water from probably a very specific mountain stream because you don't want to drink like the Mississippi or St. Croix. I wouldn't recommend that. But in all reality, it's, it's, it's this refreshment and it brings refreshment to all of our senses. Poetry is rhythmic, creative, offering varying interpretations. And so today as I read, um, as I was preparing, I actually wanted to com- put this alongside what Isaac Watts wrote in addition to this. Because I think what he does is he helps with maybe our English form, is help explain it like that in a poetic form. But poetry also solves another purpose than just expressing beauty. In college, I studied um, Bible and theology. I graduated from Bethel a number of years ago. And one of the course texts that we had to read um, was how to read the Bible for all it's worth. When I was reading it at the time in college, I didn't enjoy it or appreciate what the authors were arriving at. 
I just found it frustrating and somewhat ironic that as I'm studying the Bible in college, you actually don't study a lot of the Bible. You study resources that talk about the Bible. And so for me, at that time, using this book as a resource to help me understand the Bible better, I wasn't interested. But I want to recommend it to you all because it helps us locate and understand that a lot of these, all these texts come out and are born out of a specific time and situation. And that doesn't mean, and that, I think that's very specific even to us because I think that means that God continues to move in our situations and he uses these situations to speak to us. But in order for us to understand them, it just helps us if we can understand the type of literature we're working with, the historical context, what was going on at the time. Those are the resources that help aid us in knowing and learning about who God is and why he said what he said to his people. So I have a few quotes for you guys that I want to read to you from their book because I think they help us understand that a little bit more. According to the authors, in ancient Israel, poetry was widely appreciated as a means of learning. Many things that were important enough to be remembered were considered appropriate for composition in poetry. Just as we can reproduce from memory the words of songs much more easily than we can reproduce sentences from books or speeches, the Israelites found it relatively simple to commit to memory and to recall things composed in poetry. Making good use of this helpful phenomenon in an age where reading and writing were rare skills and where the private ownership of written documents was virtually unknown, God spoke through his prophets largely by poems. People were used to poetry and could remember these prophecies. They would ring in their ears. And so the people of Israel were used to hearing these things, but also I think there's an important thing that this is how that they were passed on. This is how they were, were remembered, was in this form, because you could remember them. And that, I think, is the emphasis here, is that, that these things are remembered, and we don't fall away from them. One of the challenges that I have had with reading the Bible is that as a 21st century person, um, I find myself to be a consumer. And Amazon's an incredible model for that in the sense that if you want something, you click on it and you can get it two hours later. And I think that as a society, that is the way that we are moving. It's hard to sit on a text and just let it speak to us. It's hard to keep coming back and reading the same thing over and over again or else not even to have any understanding of what's behind it. And so being one of the people that was called and got to be asked to preach, this exercise has been incredibly um, life-giving to me as I've just been able to sit on the text and let God's word come over me and wash over me and cleanse me and heal me and direct me to him. One of the difficulties with interpreting the Psalms, though, arises from their nature, what they are. Because the Bible is God's word, many Christians automatically assume that all its contents are words spoken from God to people. Thus, they fail to recognize that the Bible also contains words spoken to God or about God, which is what the Psalms do, and that these words, too, are God's word. That is, because the Psalms are basically prayers and hymns, by their very nature, they are addressed to God or express truth about God in song. This reality presents us with a unique problem of hermeneutics in scriptures, how we interpret, how we understand it. 
How do these words spoken to God function as a word from God to us? Since they are not propositions or imperatives or stories that get us in touch with God's story, they do not function primarily for the teaching of doctrine or moral behavior. Yet they are profitable when used for the purposes intended by God who inspired them by helping us to express ourselves to God and to consider his ways. The Psalms, therefore, are a great benefit to the believer who looks to the Bible for help in expressing joys and sorrows, successes and failures, hopes and regrets. Those who have gone before us have gone through many of the same challenges, doubts, and fears, and we share with them the reality that we are all broken. This last little bit is helpful as we approach this psalm because it is David who is inspired by God and is using his own words and his mind in worshiping God as he considers the creation, God's spoken word, and what the word is doing in his inner man. He considers all of this, and it leads him to conclude, May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As I was thinking about some of the context in which possibly this, was, this psalm arose out of, um, I thought of my own and thought, who are, who are our modern-day poets? And initially my first thought is, I just, when I think of poetry, I think of music. And the thing that I find with music these days is that, number one, it's, it's all out there. There's all sorts of different forms. But I think it's probably poetry at its most basis, base level. Um, it's, some of it may be artistic in some ways. But at the same time, what I'm after actually is what the modern day, our modern-day poets are expressing and communicating. What is influencing them? The first plot that pops into my head right now is that I could start generalizing all of the different genres, but also all of the different things that they want to sing about. But generally speaking, I would say most of the songs contain some aspect of love, Disappointments about a relationship, hurts in a relationship, long-term relationships. They're about hate, justice and injustice, peace, pleasures, drinking, sex, living for the weekend, getting a feeling or getting high. What actually a lot of these songs point to is that people are searching for meaning. Most of this meaning, though, is short-sighted and momentary. Whether or not these themes are important or not, or the singers and song, or whether they're important or not to the singers or songwriters, it is more indicative of actually the mindset in the world that we live in. It's actually interesting to think about these, these are actually the things that people want to sing about. Like, if we hear some of these things, like, why, like, why are you singing about this? There's no content here. There's nothing to celebrate. But it also, I think, exposes the side that this is how people live their lives. Like, this is what they're looking for. This is what they worship. Because at the heart of worship, in essence, is that worship is exactly what we give our hearts to. It is what gives you joy in life.
besides the fact that music is big business with a huge bent towards profit, their lyrics expose all of their values. These songs are meant to touch on an emotion or feeling within us that we can relate to or sympathize with. It is meant to evoke a response in us. And our psalm isn't much different, except that it is offering something much different to its hearers. This psalm is meant to evoke in us a response to move us towards God. Rather than blaming someone else for the failed relationship, looking to seek vengeance or wishing ill on someone else, our poem offers solutions to the brokenness and the hurt. It offers us lasting joy, peace, security, rather than momentary fixes or feelings. The gold or pleasures that may bring and that will ultimately lead to us wanting more. So let's dig in a little bit more to these psalms. Let's go over verses 1 through 4 again. And as I, I don't think I said this before. Actually, I maybe did. Sorry if I'm losing track. Um, I'm pairing this alongside Isaac Watts' version of this psalm. So I'll read from our scriptures first. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. This one here is from Isaac Watts. Great God, the heavens' well-ordered frame declares the glories of thy name. There thy rich works of wonder shine, a thousand starry beauties there. A thousand radiant marks appear of boundless power and divine skill. From night to day and day to night, the dawning and the dying light Lectures of heavenly wisdom read. With silent eloquence they raise our thoughts to our Creator's praise. And neither sound nor language need, yet their divine instructions run far as the journeys of the sun, and every nation knows their voice. Here's a couple things I want to point out to you. First and foremost, it is important to say that it is the creation here that is actually praying and extolling our Lord, and it's not the other way around. It's not the fact that creation is receiving this glory or praise, but it is the maker. This contrast, this could, we could contrast with both the exodus of the people coming out of Israel because they were influenced and brought with them images um, that God commanded them not to when God called them his people. But also these sorts of things were available and readily um, accessible, and the neighbors of David also did this. And so what we see here is David praising the Lord, but also knowing that there's nothing else like our God. In Deuteronomy 4.19, the Lord says this, When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the stars in the sky, do not be led astray to bow and worship to them and serve them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under the sun. And so what we see here is that, like, for us in our, in our current modern day, I don't know people that actually think of the universe and think of the planets and stars as these beings or these, these spirits, whatever they may be. 
I don't see, I don't interact with that. And so like that is foreign to me. But what isn't foreign to me is that, that my heart also isn't drawn to the creation to praise my maker. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. What do the heavens and the skies say? I think you can read this in two ways. We all know, we've all been outside on a starry night outside the city because the city lights kind of affect the view of the stars and the beauty of the night. Because there we behold and see thousands, as Isaac Watts says, thousands of stars that are so distant and far away and so massive. So the skies are telling of the greatness of this universe that we live in. But they also display the greatness of the one who made it. But I think there's another way to look at this too. And that is, the skies proclaim the work of his hands and that they're revealing his works that are down below here. It is the skies above that let light into our world. It is the skies that reveal the contours and shapes of our landscape, the scale of the mountains. They are the stage lights to what the Lord has made here on this earth. The psalmist is also inviting us into this. He's asking us to ponder upon it, to analyze its composition, its, its structure, its size, its scale, and just ponder on how the, how the details of such a universe could be made. Let's look at something more simple for us. Let's look at a building. You look at, we look at the architecture, the structure, design, all the materials used in all the work, the planning involved in the building, the organizing of it, and then the maintaining of the structure itself so it doesn't fall down. There are so many principles, instructions, techniques, and rules to follow that if you, if you don't, you will have an unsafe and poorly built structure. And I think this model is actually also helpful for instructions for our lives we all follow something in our lives. We're all looking to follow after something, for something to lead us. And for the way that the world does things, it is led by its impulses and desires. Some people think that they're using logic. But we confess that we are using the word of God to direct our lives. Going back to the structure, this building does not get built unless someone goes through all the trouble in building it. There's another important element to this, and that is taking out the one who made the building and looking at this person. If the builder is one who loves beauty, quality, and care, won't his work show this? Even though a building itself can't speak, won't its finished product speak for itself without using words? People will pass by this building and speak of its beauty, its grandeur, its scale, or the absence of it. They will either honor or dishonor the one that built it. Similarly, the cosmos we live in with all the order and design and such fine intricacies to the balance of life itself. This sort of world and all the life within it doesn't just happen. It doesn't appear by chance, but is made by someone who has plans that we've never seen but have he's given us in his word that direct our steps none of us were there when the foundations of the world were made we didn't get to weigh in on how it was formed we didn't tell the maker why don't you put a little lake over there why don't you put a mountain on this side let's put up a couple deciduous trees over there flower bed over here he made it and he formed it 
And even our maker is in such a way where the world can even change and move. And he is still sovereign. This is a sort of world and all the life within it does not just happen by chance but is made by a God whose depths and heights are beyond our comprehension. We have been given minds to discover and understand some of its complexity. This is what the creation is speaking to us. This is what the skies and the heavens are confessing. They captivate us and cause us to wonder by their beauty and immensity. Every sunrise and sunset offers a different array of colors as they interact with the clouds, and the sunlight hits them in varying ways, illuminating the shape and features of the sky. But there's something else brilliant that is going on here. Creation is speaking, yet it's not audible to any of our ears. Day after day, they pour out speech, and night after night, they communicate knowledge. Yet there is no speech, there are no words, and their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. This paradox is fascinating. Have you ever heard this guy speak? Me neither. But it does. And I bet it says something similar to all of us. It says that I am vast and beyond measure and too wonderful for you to attain. In this lifetime, we could never fathom the depths and heights because of how great it is. Our scriptures tell us how it was formed and how it came to be and that it was through speech. God said, let there be light. Our scriptures testify that it is through speaking that life began. It is through speech that creation continues to witness to his glory. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. And the creation is still speaking to us. Has anyone ever heard Anyone say that the sky is plain, uninteresting, or boring? Only a fool would consider saying anything so ridiculous. Let's keep moving. Um, The sun. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Isaac speaks here. The sun, like some young bridegroom's dressed, breaks from the chambers of the east, rolls round, and makes the earth rejoice. Wherever he spreads his beams abroad, he smiles and speaks his maker God. All nature joins to show thy praise. Thus God in every creature shines. Fair is the book of nature's lines, but fairer is thy book of grace. David here is speaking of the vigor, the stamina, the youthfulness, the strength of the sun, but also of its power. The sun gives us light, and nothing can avoid it. It rises on one side and sets on the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. It brings life to all of us. It searches over every cranny and exposes and shines its light on everything hidden. 
It is persistent day after day shining down on us. This last statement gives us a visual and structural link into the next part of the psalm and how God's law, his instruction and precepts give us life and so reveal what is hidden in the inner recesses of our heart. I want you to think about something with me for a minute. Ponder with me both light and heat. Both are present together. Is there a time when one is present without the other? Think of the sun, lightning, fire, lava. The brighter the light, the hotter the heat. We also use heat to melt things, to purify them. It removes the impurities from the substance itself, and it results in something pure. Heat also provides us with a warning. If you get too close, you'll get burned. In the same way, David is warned by the Lord's word to keep it, to follow it, to not stray from it. And also in keeping it, there is a great reward. Let's look at the next section, and I want you to notice how these descriptions of the Lord's word, there are traces of light and heat and life in all of these. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Isaac says, I love the volumes of thy word. What light and joy these leaves afford. To souls benighted and distressed, thy precepts guide my doubtful way. Thy fear forbids my feet to stray. Thy promise leads my heart to rest. From the discoveries of thy law, the perfect rules of life I draw. These are my study and delight, not honey, so invites the taste, nor gold that hath the, the furnace past appears so pleasing to thy sight. Thy threatenings wake my slumbering eyes and warn me where my danger lies. But tis thy blessed gospel, Lord, that makes my guilty conscience clean, converts my soul, subdues my sin, and gives a free but large reward. God's light shines into our hearts and reveals what it is that motivates us, what it is that moves us, what it is that draws us to other things, but he also exposes the pride that's in there, the love of ourself, the worship of ourself, the worship of things that we think are going to give us life. God spoke to his people and instructed them how to be in relationship with him and one another. These are our directions for living. 
the one who made the earth with such knowledge and such depth, he also instructs us how to live. In reference to this, I want to quote C.S. Lewis because I think he does a great job of speaking simple truths in a profound way. They, and he is speaking of Israel, they know that the Lord, not merely obedience to the Lord, is righteous and commands righteousness because he loves it. It would be fun actually to, to go through a series on light and its association with God because I'm recalling a psalm right now that says that God wraps himself in light. We can't, we can't behold the face of God because we aren't pure. We can't see him because he is so much more righteous than what we are. He is so good and so great and everything that isn't pure melts away like the analogy of the heat in the metals. If we haven't been made pure, we cannot stand before him. And I bet that message doesn't stand so well in our culture today where they want to tell us and they do say to us, accept me for how I am. Let me think the way that I want to think. And God's people, we should be unified in that we are made pure only by the blood. And that is the only way that we can draw near. I'm going to go on to keep saying what C.S. Lewis says. He enjoins what is good because it is good and because he is good. Hence, his laws have truth, intrinsic validity, rock-bottom reality, being rooted in his own nature and are therefore as solid as that nature which he has created. Their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness. So David has touched this reality and in knowing this reality, he puts, he puts everything at stake in it and he gives his heart to it because he knows there's nothing else. Mr. Lewis goes on to say, this is like a pedestrian it is like his delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. If it is your goal to pursue riches or pleasures, if this is where your treasure is, this is where your heart will be also. And the fruit of this is short-lived. But we all suffer from temptations of this. In our culture, too, that we live in, as we're surrounded by, we have the celebration of accolades and successes. And I think some of these are actually worthy to be spoken of. But when you put your hope in that and care about what all these other people think and find your basis in that, you will find yourself searching and wanting. So finally, let's read the last set of, of uh, verses here. And this is when the word of God has sunk into David. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back, keep back your servant also from presumptuous or willful sins. 
Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Just as the sun in verse 5 shines its light on all the earth and searches out all things, the word of God does the same thing. And it searches it out in all of us and it is meant for all of us. And in David here, his confession, he's not concerned with what other people are doing or how they're living. He's concerned with the effect that it makes on his life because it is, he's the one that is going to stand before the maker someday. He is the one that will have to answer for what he's done. And so he asks the Lord, as his word has been made, made fresh to him and come over him, show me what it is that I've done wrong. Because we don't know and we get lost in it or we get we get off track. And so in conclusion, he says, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As I was discussing this passage passage with a very close friend of mine, he summed it up nicely and this is kind of what I want to leave you with today. If he is truly the creator of all, the one his word flowed from, your true rock and redeemer, well, that should be abundantly visible in your dealing with nature, his word, and your own life. If he is the true rock on which your life is built, and the true redeemer who has separated you from the mindset of this world, everyone around you will know that your one and only goal is to please him. You do not become religious. You become a worshiper in word and deed. Thank you for listening to me today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your creation. For the the things that your hands have made You have so well organized and planned and carefully thought everything out. We praise you for the wonders that we see, the complexities. And we praise you for how your word is the same and that it brings us life as you create life. Thank you for leading us, for moving in us, for your word and coming back to it again and again and how it washes over us and it cleanses us. We love you, and we thank you for healing us. In your name, amen.